This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am, of course, Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted as always to be here and to wish you an official Happy National Cat Lady Day. Uh, Of course, I'm not sure exactly what day you are going to be listening to this podcast, but today when I'm recording it, Monday the 19th, it is National Cat Lady Day. And National Cat Lady Day was actually, it's a pretty recent holiday. It was started in 2017 by Susan Michaels of CatCon. Some of you may be familiar with with CatCon, the event that's held. It's sort of like Comic-Con for cat lovers. And it's held every year in Pasadena at the Pasadena Convention Center. I actually was a speaker there one year, I want to say 2018. Maybe it was 2019, but I think it was 2018. Really is amazing how the years just sort of all start to run into each other and and kind of blend together the older you get um like 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 the teens all all the time from like 2011 until 2020 was pretty much just one big whoosh but anyway uh so it was started National Cat Lady Day was started by Susan Michaels of CatCon in 2017 to 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 dispute or or get rid of the stereotype that cat ladies are sad and lonely spinsters. But, you know, I, I got to tell you the truth. Part of the reason why I get so frustrated with the book publishing industry kind of hanging on to this stereotype that there is something sad or weird about cats and about women who love cats and women who want to tell stories about cats is because I really don't think that that stereotype holds much water anymore in the rest of society. And it's true that I I obviously live in a very cat-positive little bubble. So I, I do understand that. So maybe I don't necessarily have the best perspective on things. But I also feel like you just don't hear that sad cat lady stereotype. I don't hear a lot of jokes at the expense of women who love cats, let's say very often anymore. And I kind of feel like that is because within the last 10 years, and just with the popularity, even among non-cat people of cat videos on Facebook, or grumpy cat memes, or things like CatCon, or or people like Jackson Galaxy, who, whatever you want to say about him, and I am certainly a fan, but even if for some reason you're not a fan, he is nobody's idea of a cat lady, and there is certainly nothing effeminate or, or womanish about him. And, uh, you know, if anything, he, he looks like the kind of guy that when I was growing up, my parents would have crossed the street to avoid tattoos, of course, in, in, in my growing up days being a, a pretty rare, pretty rare thing, especially to see somebody with as many tattoos. It's, it's much more common now. 
again, this is getting off the subject, but the point being that I, I genuinely don't think that it is such an issue anymore. I'd be curious to hear what you guys think. Um, please do chime in in the comments section or head over to GwenCooper.com. Um, you can go to the page for my podcast on my website and leave comments there, or you can hit the, the contact button and send me an email and let me know what you think. I really am curious to hear from you and see what your own experiences are. I just don't feel like I, I hear jokes at the expense of, of women who love cats that much anymore, uh, which again is why I find it so frustrating that it's a stereotype that persists in book publishing, that there's something weird or sad about cats and the women who love them. Because it just feels like this is an area, in uh, one of many areas in which book publishing is is kind of one step behind the rest of the culture. And along those lines, on, on the note of women who love cats and other animals, I am so thrilled to bring you the first part in a little while, the first part of a two-part interview with Cy Montgomery, naturalist, best-selling author, National Book Award finalist, and just a fascinating woman to speak to. I know that many of you are fans of her books, uh, including The Good Good Pig, The Soul of an Octopus, How to Be a Good Creature. And so we, we she and I ended up talking for a long time. We, we've been sort of pen pals for, for years. We have been had an email correspondence with each other that began even before Homer's Odyssey was published and so has continued over the last decade. But this was the first time we actually have spoken real time. And the conversation is she just had so many fascinating stories to tell. The conversation went well over an hour. And I was trying to edit it down and I decided that, you know, and I, and I really couldn't decide which of her stories was worth cutting because they're all just wonderful. So I decided instead to break the interview up into two parts. So we're going to have the first part this week and the second part next week. And this will be my, my first uh, two-part interview. And I'm very excited to bring it to you. So please do stick around. I will have that for you in just a few moments. And of course, I also uh, want to, speaking of, of good things that are coming, I'm, I'm just really crackling, you know, crackling with the segues today. Speaking of good things that are coming, uh, some exciting stuff coming up to my Patreon supporters this week. Um, for those of you at the $10 level or higher, later on this week, I'm going to be releasing some excerpts and some sneak previews of my new book in progress. And so that should be a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoy it. Also, for people at the $25 level and higher, we are going to have this month's video chat, and that will be happening later on this week. And that's about eight or nine of you um, to whom that applies. So I will be looking forward to talking to, to a very small group of you very intimately, very soon this week. And then to everybody who supports me on Patreon, uh, there is a new Lawrence Loves Gwen bonus podcast available there. And also a new column, you know, I have a column that I write just for my Patreon supporters. I call it Gwen's Catnips. I'm not sure to tell you the truth that, that I love that title for the column, but it's a fun column. And if you are a fan of my writing, um, I like to think that it's a nice little bi-weekly dose of, of my writing about cats, of new writing for me about cats. And that is available to everybody who supports me on Patreon. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I encourage you to head over to my Patreon page 
And that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Gwen Cooper. So Patreon is basically a way for people to become patrons of my work and, and support my writing and help both my writing and my podcast remain independent of both traditional publishers and corporate sponsorship or advertising. And it's also a really fun community that we are building up. We, we have just over 100 subscri- uh, supporters on Patreon right now, subscribers, supporters, etc. And so it's a small enough community that, that I'm really enjoying getting to know everybody personally, but also enough of us that it feels like a, a real community and, and a really solid group of people. And there's lots of fun stuff that is exclusive for people who are part of my Patreon community and more things coming, including a very major sale on official Homer merchandise that is going to be just for Patreon supporters. Um, and again, the change of seasons is coming up. It's time for new t-shirts and tank tops and all that kind of fun stuff. And I will have more details about that coming up soon. So again, that's patreon.com slash Gwen Cooper. And I'd also like to give a big shout out to Keith Schroeder, Nancy Ross, and Cynthia Early, my newest Patreon supporters within the last few days. Thanks so much for coming aboard. I really appreciate it. And I don't want to go on too much longer before we get to the Sai Montgomery interview again, because she and I did talk for a while and it is broken up into two parts. And I want to leave plenty of time for that without having this podcast run too long. But I did have one story that I wanted to tell about Clayton, something that happened this week. And and again, I'm hoping some of you guys will contact me, email me, comment on my on my website, on the podcast page, and let me know if you've had a similar experience. So I was doing some house cleaning. And I feel like I'm talking about house cleaning a lot on this podcast lately, which is interesting because I've never been much of a house cleaner. But you know how it is. Once you once you invest the time and effort in the major house cleaning for the first time after a while, then you really do want to kind of keep up with it because the house looks so nice that you don't want it to go back so quickly to looking all disheveled and, and dusty. So I, I've been doing a little bit more cleaning these days, and I invested in some Lemon Fresh Pledge or Lemon Pledge to clean our woodwork with. And Clayton has become obsessed with lemon pledge to a point that it's sort of concerning. You know, we, we have like a two tiered coffee table. Um, so there's the, the top table part and then kind of a shelf at the bottom where we have, you know, some big coffee table books, whatever. And so I, I cleaned them. They're made of wood and I cleaned them with the lemon pledge and Clayton could not stop rolling around on the wood and licking it and then licking his fur where the the pledge had gotten on him. I I finally had to lock him up. I was really concerned that he was going to eat too much cleanser, which just feels like a very weird thing to have to worry about with a cat. Fanny was not affected at all. Fanny, if anything, was somewhat repelled by the odor, which is what you would expect because it's a citrusy kind of smell, even though it's a, a fake citrusy smell. But still, cats don't really like or supposedly don't really like citrusy smells. But for Clayton, it, it seemed to have the same effect as catnip. Truly, he was just rolling and flipping around and couldn't stop rubbing himself all over it or it all over him. And and I'm just really curious to know if anybody else has had this experience 
with lemon pledge specifically or with any other type of of cleanser or or household cleaning agent? And if so, if you figured out a solution other than locking your cat up where you could use the cleanser without having to worry that your cat was going to attempt to take a bath in it. And while you're thinking about that and searching your memory banks for, for any recollection you may have of a cleanser-crazy cat in your past, I'm going to encourage you to, to sit back, get comfortable, and hang out for a few moments when I will be back with the first part of my two-part interview with famed naturalist Cy Montgomery. So stick around for more Curl Up with a Cat Tale. Thanks so much for sticking around. I am delighted to welcome our guest today. Uh, she is a National Book Award finalist and the New York Times bestselling author of numerous books about an impressively diverse array of animals, including The Soul of an Octopus, The Good Good Pig, How to Be a Good Creature, Birdology, Journey of the Pink Dolphins, Spell of the Tiger, The Curious Naturalist, and the soon-to-be-published The Hummingbird's Gift, which is coming on May 4th of this year. According to her website, she's been chased by an angry silverback gorilla in Zaire, bitten by a vampire bat in Costa Rica, worked in a pit crawling with 18,000 snakes in Manitoba. I have to pause to shudder after that one. Hunted by a tiger in India, swum with piranhas, electric eels, and dolphins in the Amazon, hiked into the trackless cloud forest of Papua New Guinea to radio collar tree kangaroos and learned to scuba dive in order to commune with octopuses. She's been described as Emily Dickinson meets Indiana Jones, but I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to call her a friend. Please join me in welcoming all around outstanding creature, Cy Montgomery. Hello, Cy. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Gwen, I'm just delighted. <laughs> Thanks it's so a, much you, for having me. You know, so you and I have actually kind of been circling each other for years. And and the first thing I wanted to say, and this is true, the, the first book of yours that I ever read was The Good, Good Pig. And the reason I read it was because when I was first meeting with editors about Homer's Odyssey, about the proposal for Homer's Odyssey. So this was back many, many moons ago when, when it was still just a proposal. And I met with Caitlin Alexander at Random House. And in our meeting, she wanted me to go out and flesh out my outline a little more. She said, you know what, we're looking for something, what we're looking for something with, with a lot of heart and, and a great story, something like The Good, Good Pig by Simon oh Montgomery. Oh that was, uh, and I was like, well, I guess now I must go read <laughs> The Good, Good Pig by Simon Montgomery. And so that was, uh, that was, and, and then you started blurbing my books and I started blurbing your books and, <laughs> and, and it was well, very impressive for me. That Chris helped inspire you when you were creating Homer's Odyssey. That book is just such a treasure. I, I, as all your listeners will totally agree, really did him, you did him justice. You gave him immortality and he is out there still walking in the world, still inspiring people and making friends. And so is Christopher. And that 
is such a blessing. Uh, well, thank you. That is certainly very high praise coming from you. And, you know, I guess, uh, so here's my question for you as a, as a fellow author. You, you've written so many books um, and books for adults as well as for children. And um, I, I know this can be almost like one of those Sophie Cho- Sophie's Choice types of questions, but do you have a favorite among your own books? Oh, boy. I, I have a few favorites in terms of books that I loved writing. Some of the books that were miserable writing, um, I'm very pleased with right now. And Good, Good Pig, people don't like hearing this, but writing it was a terrible experience. I was horribly depressed the entire time I was writing it. The entire time I was writing it, I even was planning my suicide. I was extremely depressed. Writing that book felt at the time as if I was writing a great long list of everything I had lost forever. But having finished the book, instead, what I had done through the pain of writing that, which was did not feel cathartic at all, it just felt like hell. But after it came out, what I realized was Chris's spirit was still here. And that yesterday remains perfect. And that none of those blessings that he had given to me would ever go away. But it took a long time to realize it. But there's other books that I had so much fun writing and researching. Journey of the Pink Dolphins with the four research expeditions to the Amazon, the last of which I got to swim with pink dolphins every single day. I would just go out to this deserted beach, walk into the water and just tread water. And out of nowhere, somehow, seven pink dolphins, who I recognized, would come and swim with Did me. Did they start to recognize you, do you think? Did they? Oh, yeah, they definitely recognized. They, they had an easier time recognizing me than sure. I had. Because, you know, they can see with sound. So they could see all of me inside and out. And all I could see of them, I didn't even have goggles in. I had nothing. I just had my eyes. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I didn't I didn't have a wetsuit. I didn't have goggles. I, I had nothing. No, no mask. Um, but I could recognize them if they were close enough that they pulled their faces out of the water to look in my face. I could, I could recognize their faces, but they could recognize me. They could look inside me. They could see the floppy valve in my heart. They could see what was sitting in my stomach. I actually answer this is more than than I knew about dolphins, which, I, you know, I grew up in a marine biology town, sort of Miami, South Florida in general. There's there's um, a lot of marine, uh, a lot of marine biology facilities in South Florida, the dry tortugas, which you're probably yeah. familiar with. And um, so but that was something that I did not know about dolphins, that that they have such perceptive vision and and sound combined that that is really remarkable yeah they see you like an ultrasound and did did you feel accepted by the i mean were they curious did they engage with you at all was it was uh well did the they... fact that they came to me you know that they chose to come to me and spend time with me shows that yeah they did engage with me they did not touch me and i did not touch them but what they did do which was great one time they swam under me. I don't know how many animals were doing it because again, you could open your eyes under the water and you could see a little bit, but 
nothing like they could see with their eyes and their sonar, they would let loose this effusion of bubbles, which I think may have come from the blowhole, but it could have come from the mouth. And it would sizzle up my skin. And I wondered, you know, what's that? You know that certain whales and dolphins are whales will cast bubble nets um, to, to catch prey items. But I knew they weren't trying to eat me because I wasn't the right size. And dolphins don't usually eat people. Unless they're dead, they might eat you. But I mean, who wouldn't? Anyway, <laughs> so I, when I went back home and started looking this up, I found that in captivity, there was a report of dolphins, pink dolphins, doing this to each other. And it was thought to be sort of like giving your friend a massage. And is this, so this is behavior then possibly specific to pink dolphins? Yes. Interesting. And what makes pink dolphins pink, by the way? The same thing that gives us our rosy glow when we play basketball or run or huff and puff. Um, It's blood um, rising to the surface of the skin. And some pink dolphins aren't pink. <laughs> They're called pink dolphins. They're really, you know, any of Jeff Rensis, they call them Boto. Um, they, they, uh, in different, you know, in, in different communities, they have different names for them. Sometimes they're called Encantados or Enchanted Ones, but all of them are river dolphins. Um, and as opposed to ocean dolphins and others. So are they, so they're freshwater? Do they live in freshwater as opposed to saltwater? Yeah. So they're, you know, they're just a miracle right there. They're essentially pink river dwelling whales. And they sound like something that only comes out after your third martini, but they're real. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually about three shots of bourbon into this conversation. (laughs) My my listeners have heard me mention bourbon. So, so I try to maintain that natural rosy glow, but um, (laughs) So I have to ask you, what would you say what was the most, I mean, meaningful is maybe the wrong word, but, but fill in the adjective you want. Meaningful, mystical, spine tingling, the most meaningful encounter, spontaneous encounter that you have had with an animal in that animal's natural habitat in the wild, as opposed to in captivity. Mm. Well, what I was just telling you when the dolphins gave me that massage with bubbles that was pretty amazing yeah it wasn't a swim with dolphins program or anything like that some place nobody ever went and I just hired some guy to take me there day after day after day and that's where the dolphins found me but I've also had some pretty magical other ones one that comes to mind um, was an octopus who we met in Morea in French Polynesia when I was researching uh, soul of an octopus and also a, a a children's book called um, The Octopus Scientists in the Scientists and Field Series. And uh, I was with Dr. Jennifer Mather and two other wonderful research scientists, including Dr. David Scheel, who was uh, the human star of one of those great octopus movies called Making Contact. And he's writing his own book right now. Anyway, so we were snorkeling in uh shallow, relatively shallow water. And we came upon this octopus who was super friendly. It was a female, which we could tell because we were close enough to her. You could look at the third right arm and see it was a female. That's how you can tell. And this octopus 
just kind of was interested in leading us around and we could follow her. It was almost like she was showing us stuff and she could have easily gotten away from us, which considering what people usually do to octopuses would have been a very good idea. But no, instead, um, she hung around, she changed color. And at one point, she reached out one of her arms and tasted me. And man, that was absolutely magic. Even though I'd known a ton of, not a ton of, but quite a few octopuses in captivity who chose to play with me and taste me. This was a wild octopus who had no reason to think of humans as anything but dangerous and horrible. And yet this bold female octopus reached out and touched me and let me hang out with her. You know, so I have two, there are two questions that come to mind um, upon hearing that story and, uh, and I'll ask them back to back because I don't, I don't want to forget the second one. Um, but the, the first question would be, you know, that there are people, there, there's definitely a widely held belief that animals can, can get a sense of a person, whether a person is a good or a bad person, trustworthy or not trustworthy, or at least, you know, whether that person, let's say would be good, trustworthy or not trustworthy from an animal's perspective. You know, I'm sure there are plenty of people who are kind to animals, but would still bounce a check to you, let's say. But, but of course, the animals don't care about that. Um, but that animals are good at sensing those who have good, good hearts. And so my first question to you would be, do you believe that's true? And my follow-up question to that would be, have you ever been in a situation where an animal was just not having you, was just, uh, I don't know who you are, I don't care what kind of a good heart or how much you like other animals. You and me ain't pals. Uh, yeah. I'm just wondering. Yeah. So, so those would be my two questions to you. Well, I, th I think that um, animals are terrific observers and wild animals have to be, you know, if, if they are not good observers, someone comes along and eats them. Sure. So that's why humans for a very long time were terrifically good at observing nature. But lately, now that we're, we're not hunter-gatherers, but shopper-gatherers, we're kind of losing the talent for that. But I think because animals can observe us um, very well and that they have access to senses that, in the words of Henry Beston, we've lost or never attained, that sometimes, yeah, they, they can assess whether a person is, for example, you know, nervous or aggressive. Being able to sense aggression, for example, would be hugely important to your survival. And you would think in the wild, animals would be good at sensing aggression. So I'm certainly not aggressive. Um, and I'm good at staying still. A lot of animals don't like quick jerky movements. And I don't make quick jerky movements. So and I'm pretty patient. Um, but there's times when an animal is just not happy that you're there. And it's not because of you. I, this is very funny, but on the very early days of my book tour for how to be a good creature, I actually was at the, the home of a friend um, who had just had a big party. I'd done a presentation for their, they, they lived in a, you know, one of these house, a whole bunch of, of nice houses together, one of those communities. And they had like a big community house. And 
I did a reading or a talk and, and afterwards we retired to a big party at their house and they had two darling little dogs who I'd never met before who they were Maltese and they were cooped up in the bedroom. And my hostess was so eager for me to meet the little dogs and unwisely um, I followed her into the bedroom at her invitation to meet the little dogs. Well, the little dogs were very upset because they were stuck in the bedroom while all kinds of strange people had just invaded the house. So, of course, the minute I came in, they went for my ankles and drew blood. <laughs> it was so embarrassing for this poor lady who was so, so not. And I didn't, you know, I didn't care. Everybody gets bitten by dogs sometime. Yes. You know? When yes. the dog bites, when the bee stings, it's not yes. if the dog bites, you're going to be bitten by a dog. And that's very true. <laughs> and these little guys, you know, when they bite, they don't just bite, they bite and they twist. Yes. So, you know, there was more blood than there probably should have been. And the carpeting was light. And um, anyway, so yeah. And was I, your guest like naturalist, naturalist? I Montgomery doesn't know anything about, <laughs> about befriending animals. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should have said, let's wait till everyone leaves the house. So it's a calmer, um, a calmer environment yeah, for the yeah. dogs. Um, yeah. You know, so it, it's funny. Uh, not well, not funny. Um, I, I was uh, actually a couple of years ago. My my next door neighbor's pit bull took a took a chomp out of me. Um, simply oh. because I, we had walked out of the house at the same time. Um, the dog's person, what w- you know, she w- was taking him out for a walk, and I guess, and the dog was very protective and and obviously felt that I was too close. Um, and I could always tell from observing the dog that he was one of those very defensive and and protective dogs you know you can tell by the, the the facial expression the set of the shoulder he took his job as protector very seriously and it's a shame that nobody ever trained him that his job was to be a dog and mm-hmm. and not a guard dog um but i remember you know in in telling my mother because i've always been very good with animals and and as was my father this was something i got from him and i i've really you know, and, and my family, we were dog rescuers and, and we worked with with dogs who were aggressive or had abusive backgrounds. And and my father and I especially were always good at kind of sense, you know, paying attention to dogs and what made them or animals in general made them nervous, what made them feel comfortable. But my mother's uh, reaction when I was, well, there's obviously something wrong with that dog if he doesn't like you. And I just, and I just, (laughs) that was like a classic mom reaction. Like what dog wouldn't like you? And, uh, and, uh, but, but to your point there, there, it is inevitable at, at some point there is, no matter how, how good you think you are with animals, there are going to be animals who are just like, no, no, not you. Yeah. And I mean, and it doesn't mean anything. It's not like insulting to you frequently, just like in your case, the dog was not reacting to Gwen, you know, the dog was reacting to the situation. Right, right. He was protecting a very tiny person and he obviously felt I was too close. And like I said, I put that more on the family that did not see what I saw, which was a dog who was always very wary and mm-hmm. and somebody should have worked with him to train him. Like you live in a house, you're, you're not guarding, uh, you know, Fort Knox, you are hanging out with a family and it's okay for you to be calm and right. relaxed. Um, but well, anyway, I've been that, by quite a few interesting animals in my time, um, and, and never has it been the animal's fault, really. I mean, with the, the instance that I described, that was my fault. That was not the little dog's fault. The dog was cooped up. I mean, it was 
totally reasonable to, to bite me. I've been bitten by a California condor. Again, it was entirely my fault. Um, I let go of the head, which wasn't smart. We were doing health checks. You're like a personal injury lawyer's worst nightmare. <laughs> it's always my, no, really, your honor. It was my fault. It was my fault. I brought it on myself. Well, it was, it was. And I, and I knew, I mean, we were doing the health check and I know how to hold the, you know, your arm around the wings, a big animal. Um, and I, I had my other hand around the, the beak and, and the eyes. And then you're supposed to get up and weigh the bird, which means you're weighing yourself holding the bird. Right. But when I stood up, I felt the bird slipping and not wanting to be stuck holding an endangered wild California condor by the neck. I let go of the head and, and got, got bitten, but it's thrilling to, to have the honor of being bitten by a. <laughs> I suppose country. that's true. How many people <laughs> even get to see a California condor, much less be bitten by one. And I was pooped on by one, a different one. <laughs> well, you know, according to Jewish superstition, that is good luck. When a bird poops on you, it's good luck. I think that is great. Well, I mean, in one sense, it's it's good because, you know, what what else is going to happen to you that day? Um, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> you don't want to tempt fate by asking that question. But I suppose, <laughs> I suppose it's a fair enough point. I'm not really sure why. According to Jewish superstition, it's good luck. But I do remember my grandmother telling me this when wow. I was, and, and and this is, and this is actually, I've had this since verified, uh, you know, by by others. But it is according to to Jewish to Jewish superstition, when a bird poops on you, it is good luck. Um, as I told my husband, we were in London in St. James Park. We we were going to the theater, so he was in a suit. We decided to walk through the park first, and I think like three birds just. Uh, went to town on <clears throat> went to town on him and I said well at, at least uh at least we're set for for good luck for the rest Mazel of the night right. you know it would <laughs> exactly. be even better if the bird had done it 18 times because that that is right and and for those listening who don't understand um, the the number 18 in, in Hebrew, letters and numbers use the same characters so the letters that form the word chai which means life also form the number 18. So, so it's cooked on 18 times by a bird. That would be the best day you can imagine. <laughs> yes, it would be because that would be the day you would go out and buy a whole new wardrobe spontaneously. <laughs> Cause you'd have to, that, that would be the day of the big shopping spree. <laughs> if a break. Also the day that somebody needs to take a bird to a vet. Cause that would just be a lot of times. <laughs> for for a bird to poop on the same person. Um, so so here's another question that I have for you. Um, and, and I always wonder this when I read your books, because I, obviously, obviously you have this deep and lifelong passion for animals. And, and this is very clearly just so at the core of who you are. But I also always feel when I read your books that you're somebody who's a genuine passion for words and for language. And I, you know, if, for example, in, in the soul of an octopus, I actually, and this is the, the nerd in me, but I love that you talk about why octopuses is actually the correct plural and not octopi. And it has to do with a Latin word versus with a Greek ending versus a Latinate, you know, ending in terms of the pluralization. And, and it, it you know, I, I could go down the, these sort of uh, geeky corridors for <laughs> endlessly. Um, but but that strikes me as as something that that would be the person who writes that or who cares about these distinctions is a person who cares about language and cares about words. And so I guess, you know, did you always know 
I, I kind of feel like I, I guess your work as a naturalist precedes your work as a writer, but did you always want to be a writer too? Were those two parallel desires that you had, or did you just get to a point where you had done so much work as a naturalist that you felt it was time to let others know about what you were doing? Well, my first love was animals and I loved animals before I could even speak. And I'm told this, I don't have any memories really that early, but um, my parents told me that when I was just learning to walk, they took, I was born in Germany. They took me to the Frankfurt Zoo and I broke free of their hands and they found me in the hippo pen. So where I was fine, they were horrified. The hippo was fine. I was fine, but I've always wanted to be with animals. And as, as a little girl, I thought I would be a veterinarian. Um, but then when I began to read and my father, my hero would read to me from the New York times, when I was learning to read, we lived at, um, Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, New York. So the, the paper was the New York times. He'd read me stories about animals. Well, what were the stories about animals during that time in the 1960s was all about how animals were going extinct. Whales and eagles and giraffes and elephants. I was horrified. And I knew what extinction was because I knew the dinosaurs were no longer with us, which distressed me no end because I loved dinosaurs. And it was very early on that I decided that I would, I might be able to help more animals by writing um, about them and enlisting the help of readers of all ages, really, to change the situation for animals. And, And not just animals who might be going extinct, but Animals, including dogs and cats, who need our help too, because there's there's so many homeless and abused and neglected uh, domestic animals. And I felt that the thing that I needed to do was to use not just my limited intellect, but also my unlimited emotion and intuition to show that these animals are capable of incredible feats of the senses of athleticism, but they also think and feel and know and that they love their lives as much as we love ours and that our lives are so deeply enriched by knowing these other souls and that their souls matter. And that is what every book I've ever written has had at its heart. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next week when we will continue this conversation with Cy Montgomery. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cattail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline-loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me. 
And don't forget to hug your cat today. 